Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. All right, guys, I got my good friend Robert Barnes here. Robert, welcome to the Rebel Capitalist Show, my friend. Glad to be here. So we got a lot to talk about. First, and oh, you know what? First and foremost, I need to tell you a funny story. I think you'll get a kick out of this. So I just started bowling a while ago. And as you would imagine, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I went straight to YouTube to try to look for a bowling tutorial. And the first tutorial that popped up, I'm like, oh, wow, this title, you know, thumbnail looks good. And I noticed that it's from a channel called Viva. I'm like, Viva? And I looked at the second name, and it was Viva Fry. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not, it, this was on my TV, you know, so I couldn't see, like, his uh, his little profile picture. And I'm like, no, this this can't. I'm like, you know, what are the chances that there's another YouTuber with the exact same weird uh, name, you know, because it's so unique. So I, I clicked on the video and sure enough, the first screen you got this guy coming in like this and it's Viva Fry. It is Viva Fry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is going on here? And I looked at the video. It's like four years ago and he was doing this bowling tutorial and the guy's incredible. Did you know yeah. that? That he's like an amazing bowler. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, he's, he's a great bowler. That was one of his viral videos. He had one where a squirrel took a camera, uh, took one of those little mini GoPros and went running around with it. Uh, <laughs> the, and there's some older videos of him doing, uh, uh, running while doing karaoke, uh, running while doing, doing singing, like, you know, running in his suit, running out all the, cause he was trying to figure out a way to break through. And then he just went back to his more natural space of law and, and politics. And that's where he, ultimately found his audience but yeah there's all these great eclectic uh videos he's done with his family done uh by himself that are, are fascinating but one he's a great bowler it, and, you know and it uh really demonstrates his personality it really it sounds boring like a bowling tutorial but he makes it really fun and i really enjoyed watching it so next time that you see him tell him thank you very much it really helped me out and like the other day, I, I bowled like 155, which is like a fantastic score for me. And I owe it all to Viva Fry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, let's get back to business, my friend. So as most people know, you and I have this FOIA request with the Federal Reserve, and that most likely turns into a lawsuit. And whenever I talk to you, I like to get an update, even if there hasn't been too much uh, correspondence over the last couple months. So what's been happening on that front? So they finally produced their at least the way in which they index and store and archive documents because we had requested a range of documents and information. They had responded by saying they couldn't find those documents or information. Not They couldn't search by keyword. They couldn't search by subject term. They couldn't search by any of these things. Things right. like, you know, we asked for any of their internal documents, communications, correspondence, emails, memoranda, notes about central bank digital currency. How long have they been thinking about it? How long have they been contemplating it? What are some of their plans? They said, golly gee, we would love to search that, but we've never heard of such a thing. Uh, so the... Uh, they, and so then we said, okay, well, give us how you organize documents, how you archive documents, how you index documents. You know, you got some sort of J. Edgar Hoover special little version of the Dewey Decimal System. Right. Uh, and so they finally produced that, though they produced it in 45 pages of quasi, you know, gobbledygook. So we were able to decipher that, now have a sense of how, in fact, they actually archive documents. As we suspected, 
buried in the information they provided, they in fact do organize, index, archive, digitize documents according to subject term, according to keyword search capabilities. So but that allows to, us- The important thing there though, Robert, is you need to know that. So when you do further requests, you can make that request in the format in which they can use to search for what you're asking for. I mean, it Precise. sounds insane, but that's exactly what you have to do. That's exactly right. You know, it, it's it's like like an old French uh, library or something where, you know, you have to use this term or they get to this term to get to this term for them to be able to process your request. It's their procedural loopholes uh, yeah, right. and barriers and landmines to getting it. So the so part of that we had already done and uh, was setting up for us to file suit concerning certain documents. But we are also going back and doing additional requests using this new information. And we have additional information we want to look at. Uh, we want to look at certain things about, for example, I mean, according to public statements they've made, they've suggested that there's legal limits on whether or not they can, as a, as of this moment, actually do a central bank digital currency, and that they're right. cognizant of those legal limits. Uh, would like now that hasn't stopped the Fed before, uh, so I would, we would like to see what some of their internal memorandum and communications and correspondence are on that, and using the new roadmap they provided for how they organize, archive, digitize, and record documents, we can now use that roadmap to request the information in ways that preclude them from using procedural technicalities as the barrier to producing that information going forward. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's a slow process, but it's great news that we're actually making progress here. And by what we're learning, we can give that information to other people. So when they do a FOIA request, they can streamline it and get better results. I mean, that's really the bottom line. That's what we're all after here. Now, you, you mentioned a, a central bank digital currency. Obviously, that's a hot topic right now. And I've said many times, I tweeted this out the other day, I actually showed a picture from the Fed's website as to where they actually say that it is illegal for them to interact or do business with individuals. And uh, most people don't understand the connection there if they don't understand the plumbing. But the bottom line is it's almost impossible for them to implement what this Orwellian nightmare without individuals having an account with the Fed. So, and I know you talked to Viva about this the other day on a live stream. So what what are the details there? Is that part of the Federal Reserve Act or from a legal standpoint, why are they saying that? Uh, they're correct legally. Uh, now they've used it to try to be a barrier to, to banks and institutions even forming accounts at the Federal Reserve that they don't want present. For okay. example, there's the application to be a full reserve bank. I think there's two pending and they find every excuse in the book not to allow someone to actually form a full reserve bank rather than a fractional reserve banking system. Uh, the And you know, you're like, why would the Fed do that? It's because the Fed is there to prop up the existing banking system uh, and select politically preferred and politically privileged banks uh, not actually facilitate an effective and efficient monetary system. Yeah, and to be uh, clear, Robert, I, I want to be very clear there. What, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is there's a couple banks right now that are full reserve, and that's kind of their selling point. But they want an account with the Fed, so they can transact with other banks. Or else, you know, why would a user, why would a customer want to bank with them? So they have to request, say, "Hey, Federal Reserve, we want a bank account uh, 
you know, it's going to be a liability on your balance sheet, but we want a bank account with you, just like JP Morgan, just like Wells Fargo, just like Bank of America. They have to go through that request uh, um, process. And so the Fed is kind of pushing them back a little bit saying, oh, you know, slow your roll there, my friend. Uh, We might not give you access to our balance sheet. We might not give you that account. And if they don't, then it makes it very difficult for those full reserve banks to do business with other banks. Exactly. And so in, in the same vein, they use that legal authority to limit access to the Fed to uh, prohibit in mass individuals from having accounts at the Fed. Now, that is statutorily driven. They're given no authority to provide individual direct access to the Federal Reserve System to any individual, period. Uh, only a licensed, chartered, approved financial institution in a bank can do so. And so, uh, and you're right, as you figure out the architecture and the plumbing and the engineering of what a central bank digital currency would actually look like, then it defectively depends upon direct individual access to the Federal Reserve, which legally cannot happen right now. This is why they previously admitted that despite Biden's you know, effort to investigate and things like this, they legally can't do a central bank digital currency without Congress changing the law and the president changing the law. And I think you're right to highlight what manufactured crisis will they use as a pretext to try to uh, change that law, because that's the first step before they can functionally do a central bank digital currency, at least in the United States. Uh, elsewhere, less legal restraint. So what is your view of what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida and Ted Cruz, where they're coming out with these proposed uh, bills or laws that would actually ban a central bank digital currency? I mean, I like the fact that they're getting this out and making the public aware of this, but I'm a little concerned that it makes people hyper-focused on a CBDC, while at the same time, if we have more of these banking crises, the natural response, I think, from the central planners will be, hey, why do you want your dollars to be a liability of Wells Fargo? Just move your dollars onto the Fed's balance sheet. And to your point, de facto, that is a CBDC, even though they're not calling it that. And my concern there is that all of these people who value freedom, liberty, and privacy are pushing back against a CBDC, because that's what Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz are talking about, while at the same time they say, oh, yeah, just moving my account from Wells Fargo to the Fed, that's a no-brainer. You're going to pay me 5% interest when I'm only getting 50 basis points at my bank, and plus I don't have to worry about taking a haircut if my bank goes bust. Yeah, no problem. Let's make it happen. And then six months later, they wake up with a social credit score, and they're sitting there scratching their head saying, well, wait a minute, how on earth did that happen? They didn't implement a CBDC. And you see that. So what are your thoughts there on what DeSantis and Cruz are doing? I mean, mostly what they're doing, I think, is just sort of political symbolism. Um, I mean, particularly DeSantis, because there's a lot of limits on the the ability of a state government. Like Texas is talking about doing their own gold back digital gold back currency. Yeah, for me, that's a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think as a sort of technical strategic proposal. uh, But politically, legally, no impact uh, because state governments can't do it. Uh, my ancestors uh, were all from Rhode Island on the barn side. Uh, when the Constitution did not include a Bill of Rights, we protested, voted no until it did include a Bill of Rights. Mm. Uh, and Rhode Island was one of those states issuing its own currency. Didn't want a, didn't agree to a national currency system. 
well, then they sent in the army, and uh, so we decided, well, well, we'll we'll protest next week. Uh, you know, they had to, had to modify, but since then, states can't really do much about the monetary system because it's effectively federalized and nationalized in the United States. So that's where some of what you're seeing is purely political, purely symbolic. Uh, but also, I agree with you that they're distracting from the core issue. If they were serious about limiting central bank digital currencies, not only would they be focused on the Fed and have right. a laser focus on the Fed, uh, they would have broader legislation to take away the things a central bank digital currency could most problematically do uh, in terms of surveillance, in terms of sharing information with the state, in terms of all the things that go into the legal architecture of a social credit score, for example, ban those things. Uh, ban that from even being aggregated and gathered by private actors in a centralized location. Things like that. And they're not, uh, which tells me they're mo either they just don't uh, fully understand the issue. That wouldn't be a shock given modern politicians in the monetary system. Right. But also just told me that they're, they're looking for donations. They're looking for polls. They're looking for something to talk about in the press. They're not quite focused on the real threat, which means that either they're out of it or that they're in on it. Either one is not an effective answer for an effective political leader. Yeah. So another component that would need to, uh, that would be required if this, all these Orwellian things that you talk about, and I don't need to go over them, everyone knows the downside of a central bank digital currency. But let's just focus on the social score. In order for them to implement something like this, people not only would have to have an account with the Fed or the Treasury so they could so they could consolidate all of the data with the transactions, but they would also have to change the point of sale software. And this is something that I've been pounding the table on for a few months here. And I don't think people really get this because they think about a central bank digital currency as though it's programmable money, as though somehow the, the currency, the software that's being used is going to be able to recognize if you go to Chipotle, if you're buying a steak burrito or if you're buying a tofu burrito. And it, it, what, they, what, they, what most people really haven't thought through is that would require the point of sale software at the merchant level to change in order to give the central planners that detailed data. Because right now we know that Wells Fargo gets the uh, the vendor and they get the amount of the transaction. So they would, so if you went to Chipotle today for lunch, you'd go to Wells Fargo and it would say Chipotle 20 bucks, but it wouldn't say tofu burrito or beef burrito. And that's the detailed information that the central planners need. Because if you go to the gas station, Okay, did you spend twenty dollars on uh, on water, or did you spend twenty dollars on diesel fuel? Because those two would definitely impact your social score differently. So my question is, you know, how do we make the public aware of that first and foremost? And does the federal government currently have the ability to require a a, a business at a local level to use some sort of point of sale software to plug into this network. Um, do they have the, the ability to force them to do that by potentially withholding their business license? 
I'm, well, I'm trying to look for leverage there as to how they could get all these businesses to do that so that they could collect and centralize that data. Well, the, the legal means they would do so is uh, is, is basically the IRS, the, the tax system. So like people were annoyed when they were telling PayPal they have to now start reporting. And anybody that uses PayPal, they have to start reporting transactions as low as 600 bucks. Uh, and if, if, and they have to file 1099s for those people that basically there's, there's still the central gathering informational source is the IRS. Mm, they, okay. about half a decade ago, they started incorporating Peter Thiel's technology company, Palantir. Uh, they still don't give the IRS full Palantir authority. It's, it's, it's selective where they're applying it, but they focused initially on employment context and independent contractor context. I suspected at the time for this reason that the real goal wasn't to suddenly make the IRS super uber effective, which the, uh, which the you know politicians go back and forth on. They don't want to, they want them to be effective against the people they don't like, but not be effective against their pals and their allies. Uh, so that they're always back and forth as to what power they give them. So there's that attribute of it, but it was clear that where they were focusing was something that would be particularly useful to uh, enforcement of of some form of total surveillance system. And that's what effectively a central bank digital currency is. It just combines the capacity of a control system along with surveillance. But you're right, in order to have the control, you need the surveillance. And what they could do is they could force real-time disclosures using some contemporary software. They need to come up with the software, but to enforce uh, reporting requirements. And say, you know, we'll simplify and streamline your reporting requirements for you. You as a merchant just use this software. And now you don't have to worry about figuring out whether it's over a certain amount, under a certain amount, whether it's when you have to disclose. You don't have to worry about even gathering the information anymore. Just use our software and we'll do it for you. Uh, And that's how that would function. And legally, they could just use, they don't have control over licensing, but they could have tax enforcement threat uh as their threat and that of course tends to be more terrifying than than the licensure okay so to be clear what people need to look out for isn't necessarily something called fed coin and i i would argue it's not something called cbdc because that has such a negative uh negative um uh, just got such bad pr right now I don't know that the central planners would push something, say, hey, here's this central bank digital currency that you have to use. But what we really need to look out for is the dollar assets of the individuals and the entity in the real economy moving to the Fed's balance sheet, first and foremost. And then we also need to look out for some sort of federal push where they're encouraging or forcing businesses to change their point of sale software that would add that surveillance component. Exactly. And, and the, I mean, they're already doing it in bits. I mean, like, are they really worried about massive tax evasion of people who are, you paid on PayPal for $700 last year? No, right. uh, that, that was always about control. This was actually admitted in a book called Confessions of a Tax Collector. I said a red light Lord Conrad going into the heart of the jungle. And basically the guy describes how as the IRS themselves and and IRS commissioners and and the Fed, some of the documents we're looking for from the Fed, different people have said in public speeches and public statements uh, over the years that the, you know, they could just print money if they wanted to. So why do we even have a tax collection system? 
Mm-hmm. And their argument was uh, because of the control techniques. And this this IRS guy gets hired as an IRS agent. And he said what shocked him was in a single couple of keystrokes, he could know everything about your life. That's the reason why they create tax deductions. They create deductions so you rat yourself out. You know, tell us uh, who you like to give to politically. We'll give you maybe a small, uh, 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 you know, maybe $1, but we'll give you a small deduction for that. Uh, right. Which uh, That's why they like you to give to charities. And I mean, uh, James O'Keefe figured out the problem with having a 501c3 or 501c4. But the uh, the other problem with it is it allows the IRS to know which political cause you're giving as long mm. as the cause wants to get you a deduction so they form a 501c3 or 501c4. They tell you, hey, you, you can get deduction for your kids, so why don't you tell us about your family life? Uh, maybe you can get deductions for things you do for your church, so tell us which church you go to, what religion you ascribe to. People go into the that. People go into the confession booth every single year and yeah. rat themselves out. Rat out their friends, rat out their family, rat out their neighbors, because where you spend your money, offer a little bit of deduction. Uh, Where you spend your money tells people who you are and what you're about. And you combine that database. It's not a coincidence. Barack Obama made the IRS the enforcement mechanism for Obamacare. That was the political pretext of it was, oh, we're going to call it a tax so we can call the mandate legal. That wasn't the real reason. I was representing clients who were having their entire medical record database seized by the IRS in the name of enforcing the mandate. What they were doing is they were gathering and centralizing everybody's medical records actually in the world. I had like Korean government officials records in in, in these records. And wow. like it, they went and seized these my client was like a central clearinghouse for records the way he handled things. And they seized 60 million medical records of 10 million Americans. It had every judge in the state of California. It had every major league baseball player, every movie producer, every screenwriter. I, in order to confirm that the information was what it, what it was, and I had a HIPAA provision that allowed me to do it, I had to go in and look at what that was. I knew which movie directors, it had, to give you the detail, it had what, not just they were seeing a shrink, but what they were seeing the shrink for what their family was going to, whether they had any people going for sex addiction, tr- secret drug treatment, you know, uh, whether certain baseball players had hidden injuries, whether certain actors had secret heart problems that made them unbondable, uh, which movie directors had a serious foot fetish. I mean, you name it. It's it was, I called it Jadger Hoover's uh, wet dream of a blackmail file. And How were they that, getting that level of, of information? Were, were the, the people that were deducting those expenses just divulging that level of detail? Or Two different things were happening. One, a lot of that detail is disclosed. If initially they're disclosing it themselves, more and more they're gathering that information from third parties for 1099 purposes uh, on the guys that they need to know how to classify the amount. So you, mm. you're, they're going to keep requiring you give more and more detail about why you paid somebody something. But in the right. uh, medical record context, they do it for coding purposes, for coding purposes to prove reasonableness and necessity in case either an insurance company or the government second guesses a bill. They had to disclose what it was all for. And the, in order to enforce the mandate, all the medical records were going to the IRS. The IRS has everybody's me- medical records for the last 10 years. And I mean, I ended up filing suit on it and we stopped them from getting it to the scale they wanted to at the time. And this was 10 years ago. We filed two big lawsuits. They thanked my client 
for uh, by putting him under massive criminal investigation for five years. That was the payback for him ratting out the IRS and what they were doing. But you combine those records, tax and financial records, with uh, the information that they're gathering through Facebook on people's social media activities. It's I can buy a database right now and have 50 data points on a person on what they said on Facebook, what they said on Twitter, what they said in public space, what magazines they subscribe to. Uh, what, you know, there's a reason why they track you on the internet in terms of all the different sites you go to. That information is being sold to third parties that now have it on people around the world. And so some people are really off the grid. Some people would be shocked that the, I, 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 can, I have access to as much as 400 data points on a single individual. I use it in jury selection uh, from private vendors that's legally available already. Combine mm-hmm. that with their medical records and their tax and financial records that the IRS gets to gather. And remember, the IRS can already gather your bank records of a case before the U.S. Supreme Court right now where they want to gather records without telling you that they're doing so. Right now, if they go to your bank, they're supposed to tell you that they're getting those records from the bank about you. They, they, they've been using different excuses to get around that. In the U.S. Supreme Court, they're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to give them the approval to not even notify you. So if they have all of your bank record transactions, they build all of that into a database, and and they've then they've created a social a, a social credit score system already, like an algorithm. They, yeah, exactly. Then they can implement and enforce it through a central bank digital currency. But you're right; there's certain uh, technical components they need to implement. And those technical components require revisions in the law as they currently exist. And that's what we need to be aware of. So we need to know what those technical points are. So when we see them and when we see the central planners trying to implement them, that's how we push back. You've got to you've got to really identify the pressure points. Because if you just try to attack the whole thing, then it's just completely overwhelming. Or if you get hyper focused on Fed balance sheet with individuals and with this point of sale software, and maybe a couple of others that you might point out, that's how we win. That That's how we take our energy and, and come together as a group and really push back efficiently. I wanted to quickly interrupt this interview to ask you a serious question. Are you someone that realizes we are headed straight for an economic recession, maybe even worse? Do you also realize that the government is trying to restrict your freedom, liberty, and privacy On a daily basis, we've all heard in the news lately about central bank digital currencies. And it's not a matter of if we get them. It's simply a matter of when. But although you know we're facing all of these problems, you don't know what to do about it. How do you protect your wealth or grow your wealth when we're dealing with a very volatile economic environment? Or how do you maintain or increase your freedom and privacy when we have this woke Orwellian government that's trying to micromanage your life? Well, fortunately, got some good news for you. I have set up an event that is focused on helping you, the rebel capitalist, find solutions to these problems. It's all set up to help you build wealth and thrive in this world of -of out-of-control central banks and big governments. That event Rebel Capitalist Live. It's going to be absolutely incredible. It's in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. We're going to have speakers like Peter Schiff, Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, Robert Barnes, just to name a few. So to get more information on how you can attend this incredible event, 
that's going to give you actionable intel that will help you prepare for the rest of 2023 and beyond, go to rebelcapitalistlive.com, and I will see you in Orlando. It's also uh, to alert people. I mean, this can impact people's investment decisions and the like as well, but to at least be alert that there might be, you know, why some people have been asking, why did they take out Signature Bank when they probably didn't have to? It's not clear Signature Bank was actually itself failing. Uh, why do they let a bank as big and as prominent in, in the tech space as Silicon Valley just completely collapse rather than they could have done a half dozen things to keep them floating along? Uh, you know, it's it's you, you honestly need people to have doubts in the banking system to get people to volunteer, to rush, to encourage, to beg the government to offer this alternative without yeah. full cognizance that it is an alternative. And they'll do it through some form of uh, crisis created, kind of like the the story of the princes of Yen, same dynamic. Uh, and they don't care if it, it if it destroys the local culture, the, the country, the economy. I mean, look at what happened in the princes of Yen to Japan. Uh, you know, it's not like those central bankers have come confessing, "Golly gee, maybe we made a mistake." But the uh, uh, so uh, to pay attention to those things because the ultimate control mechanism is a central bank digital currency, and they're There's already money, building period. the architecture for it. Yeah, it's like Kissinger said: you control the food, you control the population, you control the oil. And you control continents, you control the money, you control the world. Yeah. Now, Putin yeah. is suggesting maybe not always, but the uh, uh, in, in terms of he's pushing back in his own way in terms of what that Russia-Ukraine fight is really all about, is you have a country that's tried to stay out of the dollar-driven monetary system as much as it can going back 20 years, that really that fight that looks like a military fight over an old ethnic geographic conflict is really a geopolitical fight over uh, globalist control versus nationalist independence. Uh, and so people following that can follow that aspect as well. You know, I've got a conspiracy theory for you, Robert, that I was thinking about the other day. Because I've always asked myself the question, I've encouraged other people to think through to, it's kind of a thought experiment. How do we know there's not already a central bank digital currency? Like, how do you know that your account is with B of A? I mean, assuming that it is. How do you know your account isn't already with the Fed? Like, how would you even know that? They're, they're, and so let's go back to Silicon Valley Bank. And let's go back to Signature Bank. Isn't that odd that although we only have FDIC up to 250 they said everyone is going to be made whole. Every single depositor is going to be made whole. Well, and again, this is just a total conspiracy theory. I have no, nothing to back this up. I just thought it was an interesting idea. Maybe, just maybe, they had to make everyone whole because there's no way that the depositor could take a haircut because their account is already at the Fed. So, well, I mean, how, I, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it, you know, relates to Jeff Snyder's thesis of the euro dollar system that, you know, if you've had a system that in fact has really been operating the shadows, that money is actually not being issued by central banks anymore, but by, uh, by an international cartel of banks that are effectively kind of almost secretly in control, at least from the public purview of our monetary system. And how did they do that? They did it by, by the, the technological revolution uh, if you posit his theory, created the opportunity 
for them to shift to a ledger driven system that yeah. could easily accomplish exactly what you're talking about. Because yeah. you, you don't really, I mean, half the time it's obvious the system doesn't even know who what's on whose books. Uh, I mean, why do you have sudden repo problems just sporadically pop up over and over again? Uh, it suggests that the, even the banks, even these thieves don't trust one another. Yeah, uh, well, I've got and, another you know, conspiracy theory for you there as well. I was listening to Brett Weinstein the other day, who's one of my favorites. And he it's his view or his base case that COVID was actually discovered right around September of 2019. And that's when they knew about it. I think the Chinese military games or something like that was right around that time. So uh, I, when I, when I heard him say that, I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's when we had the repo spike. And that's when the yield curve inverted. So a lot of people look at that curve inversion and say, well, the yield curve got lucky that time because there's no way that the curve could have predicted that we would have had COVID and therefore a government-induced recession due to the lockdowns and whatnot. But maybe, maybe it, it, COVID wasn't discovered in February or January. Maybe it was discovered in September. And the action that we saw in the repo market and the action we saw in the yield curve was a result of that information going to the insiders. Yeah. I mean, well, I remember you pointed out, I want to say almost two years ago, that somebody was betting in the market that the come this summer, this was two years ago, that there would be Fed cut, the Fed rate cuts that based on where certain tail risks were popping up and somebody was taking some big gamble positions. And at the time, I remember thinking that's kind of insane. I mean, this was just as inflation was getting going. It was clear that 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 was going to be a political problem for the Fed. And yet here we are now a couple of months away where everybody kind of believes that by summer, the fed is going to be. <laughs> so yeah. it's clear. There's some people that have uh, insight, you know, this goes back to nine 11, whoever just magically decided to short airline stocks two yeah. days before, you know, it's like, okay, maybe it was just one of the biggest shorts in airlines in history uh, that, you know, they just got incredibly lucky, but usually there's always somebody greedy that is always part of the scam or the system or know something. And they always tip you off before anybody else does that something's coming, that uh, it's useful to pay attention to those cues and clues in the market because somebody usually does know something the rest of us don't. Exactly. Exactly. All right, buddy, let's switch topics a little bit. I heard you on my good buddy Tom Woods podcast the other day, and I'd strongly encourage everyone checking that out. If you haven't, Tom is absolutely amazing. But you were talking about this issue with Trump and kind of the legality or illegality or kind of uh, putting it in context, viewing it through the lens of, of legal history. So can you kind of give us the, the insights there from a lawyer's view? Well, basically, you know, I mean, uh, we're now an honorary Latin American country. Uh, you know, we now, we've now reached that, that status. You know, I think our crime rate is going to exceed Colombia's pretty soon. So the, uh, at least in our major urban centers. Uh, so, I mean, the, you look at all the craziness that's taking place there. Uh, but, you know, we, we we always associated third world countries with places where you criminally prosecute your poli leading political opponent, um, not the United States. The United States has never indicted a former president before. It has never indicted the leading opponent of the uh, existing political administration incumbent. We've now broke both of those and they're trying to break it even more. So not only is New York going after Trump, Georgia's looking at trying to go after Trump. 
And D.C. and the Biden administration directly is looking at trying to go after Trump. You have the former gun dealer, uh, alleged gun dealer, I guess I should say, alleged only in a few circles, but I guess in his political circles, Victor Bout, the Russian that we shipped off for the WNBA player, because mm-hmm. that was such an even trade. You know, uh, <laughs> you know people better pray that Biden never gets near the GM of any kind of athletic uh, athletic franchise, or you're really screwed. Right. And we traded one of the world's greatest arms smugglers for a WNBA player, you know, incredible. But, you know, Putin knows his game. He's like, uh, who will they trade him for? Oh, yeah, uh, a lesbian black uh, WNBA player. That'll be like, check the box uh, for for transfers. But he was out there saying yesterday that he thinks that uh, Trump is at serious risk of assassination. So that's the level of talk you're getting internationally. They see these cases that have never happened in America before, where America made fun of other countries in the world for that happening in those countries. Uh, Navalny got uh, a documentary about him. He's like the Lyndon LaRouche of Russia, where we pretended he was like this leading opponent. He gets his documentary gets a best Oscar. Mm. And here we are actually indicting the leading opponent, actually indicting the former president. So historically without precedent, a very it's very much crossing the Rubicon of weaponizing the entire American legal process for politicized purposes, which has been happening at multiple levels. But to see it happen now is still is kind of shocking and jarring. And then it happened in this case, a case that's legally, constitutionally, factually very, very weak and politically not very appetizing to the American public. If you're going to it weak, Robert, can you explain that? Sure. So it's factually weak because it relies upon an admitted fraudster, perjurer, disbarred lawyer, Michael Cohen, basically for any credible testimony that could possibly uh, justify any of the facts in the indictment. So it's factually weak there. Legally, uh, it doesn't it's outside the statute of limitations. Uh, It's there's a five year statute of limitations in place. This happened more than six years ago in terms of the allegations all happened in 2017. Uh, but also legally, it's deficient because you're politically protected in America under the First Amendment from campaign laws being applied to you in such a way that they would illicitly burden your speech. So, for example, Trump can spend as much money as he wants on his own campaign. Can't be limited. Can't can't be can't be criminally punished for doing so, obviously. But that's effectively what they're trying to do here. They're trying to say he wanted to influence the 2016 election. So he spent a bunch of money by reimbursing Michael Cohen to hush up Stormy Daniels. Well, that's all legal under our campaign finance laws. So it doesn't even violate the law. It can't constitutionally. Uh, So it's, it's, uh, and then the substance of the law requires intent to defraud. The only person defrauded here was Trump himself. He was the victim of an extortion scheme. So it doesn't meet the uh, criminal law itself uh, as well as statute of limitations problems. And then constitutionally, many problems, selective prosecution, Due process violations in terms of venue abuse, in terms of grand jury abuse, and other issues. But the big one, in my view, is uh, that I see the Constitution has an impeachment clause. And the impeachment clause says once you remove the president, you can only do it first by impeachment conviction. But once he's an ex president, once he's a prior president, then you can indict him, try him, and sentence him. But only then. There is no map in the Constitution for a local prosecutor being able to weaponize their criminal justice power 
by basically either extorting or usurping the power of the presidency by physically kidnapping him or threatening to do so and imprisoning them. Because otherwise, the president is at the whim of any random small-town prosecutor anywhere in a country as big as ours. And he's no longer nationally elected. And, I mean, they, by golly, would have tried to do it to Lincoln during the Civil War or even after it. Uh, They would have tried to do it to many presidents over our history if this was legal, if this was constitutional. So the Constitution set up a protocol that said, okay, but, you know, you don't want someone who's a serial killer getting away with it because they're ex-president. So the, the, the solution that the, the founders came up with was, okay, if it's that serious, then you can impeach him in the House and get a two-thirds vote in the Senate. Democrats and liberal legal scholars admitted this is a protocol that's applicable to an ex-president because they just did it to Trump. His trial in the Senate happened after he had left the presidency in his second impeachment trial. So to be clear, you, a, a president can be impeached after he is already out of office. And, yes, and, and they already they proved that in the case of Trump, uh, the because he was out of office when he was tried in the Senate. And okay, so, and, and therefore, if that's true, then to go after Trump or any president after they're out of office, let's say they're a serial killer, to your point, they would have to first and foremost be impeached, and then after they're impeached, then the local attorney can go after them. Exactly. And the reason for this is some people said, why does it apply to an ex-president rather than a current president? The reason for that is simple. If if a president knows that some local prosecutor will put him in prison while he's president, uh, once he leaves the office, then he basically he's subject to constant extortion by the local criminal justice prosecutorial power. Mm. And that's the problem. And it either encourages him to try to stay in power or it encourages him to go to go basically not have the policy he would otherwise have in order to avoid that risk. And so uh, that's where the founders came up with really a very simple but elegant mechanism that says we will we'll solve the problem of a true serial criminal and, and uh, president, but we'll do so without jeopardizing the Constitution's framework for a nationally elected president. Okay. Uh, because that's what the latter, the, the threat of a local prosecutor going rogue is a lot higher than the House and the Senate conspiring together to protect a serial killer. Um, and so and if you have the latter problem, you got bigger problems, or period. Uh, so that's where I think constitutionally the none of these indictments can go forward without going through the House and the Senate. They would do that. But for the fact they know they would lose in the Senate because they don't have the votes. So that's why they're they're trying to jeopardize our constitutional framework by weaponizing the legal system in the precise way the founders tried to prevent from ever occurring in the first place. So if they know that this case, case is done, like it's going to fall flat, flat on its face, but the result is going to be Trump is going to get a lot of good PR and it's going to increase his chances of becoming president, why are they doing it? Because they don't recognize the latter part. From their worldview, two things. There's a lot of confession through projection with a lot of these folks. So they tend to project onto others their own crimes. They also project onto others their own fears. Mm. So these are people that, like, you look at what they're trying to go after Trump for. They're all things Biden is actually guilty of. you know, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or Hillary Clinton is actually guilty of. Like, that's how the Russia, like, if she was in New York, 
when she hired Christopher Steele, an ex-spy, to doctor a dossier that had fake information that was laundered through the CIA and the FBI to try to take out Trump and limit his policies while he was in office. She disguised all of it as legal fees. That's what she put on Perkins Co. That's how she hit it on the federal elections uh, republic reporting so nobody knew about it. So exactly what Trump is being accused of is exactly what Hillary Clinton actually did. Then remember back to all the allegations that Trump's family was involved in corruption, involved in foreign or overseas stuff where they were Biden, trying yeah. to, yeah. Well, of course, that's exactly what Hunter Biden did on a regular basis. That was his daily job. So the uh, you, you see these, and of course, classified documents. Who was it that had classified documents everywhere? Well, Biden, even when he's back to a senator. In fact, it appears he was using that as part of the, you know, access to that he was selling through his son to enrich his whole family. Uh, was hey, by the way, look at this classified doc. This is who I am. So and that makes a lot of sense, Trump. though, Robert. It makes a lot of sense because you know these politicians—they're not exactly cr creative geniuses, and no. they're not really intellectual types. So the only thing that they can—the only idea they can come up with—is to pin a crime on someone is to just look at the crimes they've committed and say, oh, well, we'll just do that. Yeah, I know that one real well. <laughs> exactly. Well, to me, like, if people can, uh, I've always found a useful filter because you can apply it in your own life. Like, if somebody, like, comes out of the blue and starts accusing you of things that make no sense, listen yeah. carefully, nine times out of ten, they'll be confessing their own crimes. I had this happen once that someone was accusing somebody that worked for me of all these things. Like, this is nuts. Turned out the person was confessing bad stuff they had done that I never would have found out. I just said, well, I'll reverse engineer this. And I was like, holy moly. And it led me to all these evidentiary cues of what they're up to. So it's a psychological, you know, the, it's Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart beats loudly. But the, mm -hmm. uh, the same is true. In, in, in all of these cases in context. And so they, the other thing it's also true is they confess their fears. So in their world, if the government came and were threatening them with uh, jail time, they would just do whatever the system asked them to do. So they always think either the public will react negatively to Trump or Trump will capitulate. They don't understand Trump's psychology at all. Both his virtue and his vice is that he's unmovable. So he's unmovable when sometimes you need him to move, but he's also unmovable when you need him not to move. And they really thought, look, no one has survived being indicted before. I mean, there's very few politicians in American history. I was pointing out comparisons partially to troll the left that, you know, you know, they, they tried this on a couple of folks. They're named Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. How do those mug shots turn out? Didn't exactly hurt their political future in the court of public opinion. Yeah, and, and of course, it's Democrats, so they have to arrest Trump Easter week, right? Because you know it's not like that comparison would, would cause them any harm. I mean, who comes up with, oh, when are we going to uh, arrest Trump? Oh, we'll do it the same week uh, the, the Romans did to Jesus. Th that would be a great comparison for people to read. Mm. So the, that's where they are in such a little bubble of their own world. They keep assuming that this will take Trump out. Now, I think also some people promised DeSantis's camp hey, Trump's going to get indicted, and that will give you a path to challenge Trump. And I think they suckered DeSantis into challenging Trump when they really wanted – George Soros let the cat out of the bag two months ago. He said, here's what's going to happen. DeSantis is going to challenge Trump. DeSantis will beat Trump. And because DeSantis challenged Trump, DeSantis will get killed in the general election. And mm -hmm. so they wanted to take both of them out at the same time, and they convinced people close to DeSantis, hey, nobody survives a bunch of indictments. So uh, and the poll media is already polling it this way. They're saying, should Trump 
stop campaigning now that he's been criminally indicted. Uh, you know, in that kind of routine. Yeah, but what they also base, don't understand is I don't the, think they they just it energizes his base, if anything. They they still don't understand the Trump voter group. They don't understand his base. They don't understand what's happening in America. These are people that just really live like the old uh, dying empires of London and Rome at different key junctures. The people led into World War I. Like I've been telling people, if you want to understand current foreign leaders, look at the empire leaders right before World War I. Look at the bankers in, 19, in the 1920s. And, and this will give you a, a roadmap. Now, that's not a pleasant roadmap because it leads to the 1930s. But the you look at what happened. The Austro-Hungarian Empire lasted six centuries. The Ottoman Empire lasted more than four centuries. The Russian Empire, three centuries. All of them collapse in five years. Why? Because the incompetent elites running around near them. I mean, you can find this with Mayan civilization, other civilizations around the world, that the corrupt incompetence of the elites is what usually kills a society or civilization. It's oh, it's not just their moral corruption. Every it's, time. Every exactly. time, every society. The more I study history, the more that is abundantly clear. And it just goes right back to that saying that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. You, you just see it over and over and over. You go back 5,000 years, nothing changes. Exactly. And that's what we have. We have a lot of corrupt, incompetent elites. We have people running around trying to trigger World War III in Ukraine. Others trying to run, create World War III with China. Um, I mean, the, the, you're gonna, I think you're going to see a lot of the dollar is doomed from mainstream media because they want to blame China for that. And they want the ordinary American to think, oh, we're in economic trouble because China's trying to replace the dollar. Or if we get the next wave of inflation, they can blame it on China. Exactly. And so I think, I mean, remember they tried to blame the last wave on Russia. Right. So exactly. it'll be the same, same dynamic. So the, uh, but it's like who in the world would try to have two nuclear wars at the same time or war with two nuclear powers at the same time? That's who the same people who are in the, uh, you know, in in Ottoman Empire, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the Russian Empire, who thought they could win World War One rather than be the complete demise of their entire history and mm. empire in less than half a decade. That's who yeah. we had, and those are the kind of people that are indicting Trump. And it reminds me of that quote from Lenin, where he said that there's decades that go by when nothing happens, or maybe centuries that go by when nothing happens. And then there's weeks that go by when decades happen. And, and I remember I, it, was, it was the West that sent Lenin to St. Petersburg. It was the Germans that helped to get him on the, like, oh, this will undermine the uh, the Russians. It's not like it could backfire, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy. I want to remind everybody that you are going to be a speaker at Rebel Capitals Live in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. That's going to be in an incredible event. I don't know if I told you, but you're going to be there speaking with Mike Maloney, Peter Schiff, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson. Jeff Snyder is going to be there as well. And uh, so it's going to be a fantastic group. And people can get their tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. Can you tell us about what you're doing with, with Viva and uh, what you're doing on Locals and anything else that we should be aware of? Yeah, the uh, at the Orlando conference, I'm going to do a special presentation on you know, 20 year, quarter century or so of asset planning lessons. 
that, mm. you know, I've defended him across around the world. I've attacked him going after fraudsters around the world. So have learned all kinds of interesting uh, life lessons that will be applicable to people that think that their assets are safe, that think their planning is play is uh, safe, whether dealing with governments, whether dealing with bad rogue actors, uh, going to provide the kind of presentation that normally people pay a lot more than a ticket to Rebel Capitalist Live yeah. for. To, to about, get. Uh, so you can protect their so that they can protect their financial privacy. Oh, absolutely. Completely. Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, how do you, I always call it, uh, you're 1929, it's January, you're Jewish in your Berlin and things are going well. Uh, in six months, uh, things are not going to go so well. So what would you have to have a backup plan, a contingency plan, a plan B, a plan in place? What would have worked? What would have sufficed in the modern era? Uh, and that includes what I call it jurisdictional diversification is part of what I'll be talking about. That relying upon, like a lot of people think, oh, I have a law that protects me. Well, does it really? Right. Does that court system, will that court system protect you? Will the local politicians protect you? Will that local governance protect you? Uh, so people know about, hey, we should have stock portfolio diversification, but they should also have different kinds of asset diversification that goes way beyond that in terms of fungibility, accessibility, legal reporting requirements. There's some that apply. There's some that don't apply. Like they always want to know when you take cash across the border, but not if you're taking certain other things across the border mm. that may be of a lot more value, valuable and a lot more easy to transport. So going to talk about all of those in a range of contexts so that you don't end up in a situation where the system can take you out overnight because yeah. you didn't protect yourself. And that'll be then. great. I don't know if I tell you, but Simon Black with Sovereign Man is going to be there as well. So maybe I'll have you guys kind of do a panel discussion on that topic. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I definitely want to see Jeff, because I think Jeff Snyder's theory about euro dollar is really revolutionary in perspective. That, either, that the in, it has so many different ramifications as you as you play it out. Yeah, it's not uh, just a theory. Of, I mean, it's basically an explanation. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's becoming more and more predictive in a wide range of contexts. So the uh, uh, so yeah so and then otherwise people can always uh, find us at uh, vivabarnslaw.locals.com. That's where there's exclusive content and uh, every all kinds of members post there, post links to information, interesting commentary. As it's it's like uh, Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon at uh, vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Everybody, even the trolls, are above average. <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, it was great talking to you, and I can't wait to see you soon in Orlando. See you there. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.